Hi everyone and welcome to the Indie Dev Game Break Podcast, where we interview indie game creators and force them to take a break from their labors of love and talk about their inspiration, the technology, and the top games that influence them. I'm your host, Grant Carstensen from Stray Voltage Games. Hey everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Indie Dev Game Break Podcast. Our guest today is Matt Hewson. Matt hails from the west coast of Canada, beautiful British Columbia, and is both a professional AAA developer who has been in the industry for close to 20 years, as well as an indie game developer in his own right. Matt is currently working as a development lead at the Coalition Studio, where he's worked on some amazing titles, including Gears of War 4 and Gears 5 platforms. Past projects also include time at Digital Scapes, working on Dying Light, and at Radical Entertainment, working on two very successful 3D action platformers, Prototype and Prototype 2. In his indie career, Matt is active on the Pico 8 Virtual Console with several popular titles, and is more recently very active in the NES homebrew scene, publishing several titles there, including a Tetris-like game called From Below, as well as a puzzle platformer, Witch and Wiz. He is currently working to port From Below to the Game Boy, and Matt has also recently created Minecart Madness for the NES as part of the annual NES Dev Competition 2022, which he also helped host this year. Matt, excited to have you here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Happy yeah. to be here too. Great. Um, did I miss anything important in your introduction? No, quite extensive. Thank you. <laughs> good, good. Okay, so tell me more about the NAS Dev Competition. That looked really interesting there. I, I had a look online after you mentioned it. Yeah, so it's um, it's an annual kind of game jam, but a little different than most game jams. But uh, yeah, it's an annual game jam for the NES. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been running, I think, for maybe 10, over 10 years. Um, it's quite kind of a mainstay in the community. Um, it's where a lot of the big names from uh, Homebrew started. Project Blue, um, Twin Dragons, Nebs and Debs, a lot of these games that became kind of the bigger releases started as entries in the Nest Dev competition. And basically, the format is you can kind of work on games for as long as you want because NES development's a little tougher than a lot of development so doing like a weekend game jam doesn't work quite as well and every year we have a competition the top three i think win cash prizes and everybody who enters a game in it gets their game on a multi-cart physical nes cartridge so that's like the old hong kong like pirate carts where you have like 10 games in the main menu and you pick what you want to play so it works kind of like that wow we sell that cartridge to the public and um the funds from that go to the prizes for the next year, as well as funding a cartridge for everybody who puts in a game, regardless of where they ended up in the competition. So it's a way, it's a really cool way for a lot of people who have kind of always dreamed of having an NES game or having mm. their game on an NES cartridge. It's kind of a participation award. No matter what you do, you get a cartridge out of it. So it's it's what kind of, I wouldn't say it's where I got started, but it was one of the early motivators was I was planning to. Yeah, kind of enter this competition and maybe get my own game on a cartridge, which was like a lifelong dream. Yeah. And so, yeah, this year, um, the person who usually runs it is really busy. So I took over. Uh, we moved it to itch. Traditionally, it was done yeah. manually through his website. Um, yeah. And it just wrapped up in end of October, which mm. was a really bad idea in retrospect, <laughs> ending a game jam on Halloween night. With, with <laughs> young kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you have kids, it's not yeah. a great night. But uh, yeah. yeah, we had about 30 games entered. So it was, oh, it was a really good turnout. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm definitely going to go do some research after what you just said there. Um, so so when would your, um, after this jam, when would that cartridge come out? Is that probably a, a next year well, time that's frame? A bit, yeah, that's a bit of a sticking point so we're like three years behind i think on oh really producing the cartridges <laughs> yeah like producing cartridges right now is really tough there's yeah. a lot of chip shortages stuff like that as well as this is all kind of done by people on their free time so yeah yeah we're a, we're a ways behind on that um but there's been some things in the work where we're trying to get it a little bit more of an assembly line where we can just pump them out yeah. really quickly but um yeah, it's so yeah, and those are known as Action Fifty Three, by the way. Which people who follow Homebrew at all, they may have heard of those. Um, I think there's been three physical cartridges so far. Yeah, a fourth one is uh, the fourth volume is just digital right now, but that'll be the next 
uh, physical one. And then, yeah, the, from then on, I'm not sure if we're going to keep using that. Mm. Mm. Yeah, oh, very cool though. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I I had a look at the uh, the site and uh, some of the games on there, and I mean, some good quality stuff on there too. Yeah, if you go to itch itch.io and search for Nestev Compo, you should find yeah the page for it, and all the games are free to play. Um, yeah, there's 30 games. The judging is happening for the month of November 2022. So um, December 1st, you should be able to go on and see who the winner was. And you'll have like a top five if you have nice. limited time or something. You can check those out. All right. Well, good luck. I, yeah, I, I did get a chance. I did play your entry just ahead of their um, getting together when I saw it there and quite enjoyed it. So I think oh, you got a you. strong entry. Thank you. Kind of kind of reminded me. Do you ever remember the old... Uh, so this is gonna this is gonna immediately date myself, but it was for Commodore sixty four. It was called Up and Down, and you're driving a cart and you go up, down, and and again it's a bit of a, a maze game, but gave me a little bit of. Oh, yours was of course a single screen, um, platformer. This one okay. did have a bit of scrolling, but kind of had some of the same dynamics. Same as interesting. Was, I haven't no, I haven't heard of it. Oh yeah, anyway, I'll check it out though. It's good that the um the single screen is a is a hard one to do, hard one to do that has some uniqueness to it. So. Yeah, I quite enjoyed this. Yeah. And and that one, just so everyone knows, was called, what was that? Minecart Madness? Minecart Madness, yeah. Yeah, yeah. single screen, kind of, it was meant to be kind of a throwback, yeah, to yeah. those single screen arcade platformers, Donkey yeah. Kong, Pac-Man, yeah. Mappy, like that kind of thing. So pretty simple. Um, I was I did it in a very short span, so I figured that's something I could yeah. kind of attack uh, rather than trying to build out a full kind of world and levels and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. How long? How long did that take to make? Um, I think it was a couple weeks. I don't remember exactly. Maybe a month. I was working on a much bigger project prior to that, a yeah. kind of action platformer, Ninja Gaiden kind of game, and then I just the writing was on the wall that I was not going <laughs> to finish that in time yeah. to like a standard I was happy with. So I started thinking about, well, what can I do in the remaining time if I had to start from scratch? And yeah, I'd been looking at um. Uh, Donut Dodo or Dodo Donut. I can't remember. I can't remember which one it was. It's a modern game, but it it's yep. very like Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, something like that. I could probably uh, yeah. burger time those kind of games because they're very repeatable, oh. right? There's yeah. not a lot of level design, which is takes yeah. a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. Burger time is one of my all time favorite single screens. I, uh, okay. I got properly obsessed with that for a little yeah. while. <laughs> yeah. It's a good game. Yeah, it's a good one. A lot, a lot of depth for a surprisingly simple exactly. game. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's and that's where I feel like I kind of missed the, the boat a little bit with Minecart Madness. Is I was really hoping to kind of pull it all together at the end to have like a lot of depth so that people could. Yeah, there's only five levels or so, but right. you could kind of really grind on it and come up yeah. with something. Yeah. Special, like, uh, yeah. yeah, you could come up with different strategies and stuff like that. But in the end, it it's kind of there's kind of one strategy. It seems mm. like. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, what's interesting about some of the, some of those um, single screen games that the ones that last is, I think it's accidental. I mean, you think of the old games and the, you know, you read about the pros writing those games back in the day, they had a month to build a professional, you know, and the buddy next door is his artist and they, you know, build this game in a month and they probably barely, they probably never got to the kill screen before they shipped that game. Yeah, exactly. On burger time as everyone knows in the 28th minute, it goes, ridiculously fast it's just basically mm-hmm. it's a kill screen and um i think it's kind s- of important right yeah like if you don't yeah. have a kill screen suddenly it's like well yeah competitively you just play forever and that's forever. not fun either yeah um or yeah. it's not fun at all no <laughs> so, yeah, exactly you kind of need those things to yeah some i'm sure accidentally happen yeah and the um i think the whole um grouping of the enemies pattern i don't even know if like I, i'd be surprised if that was a thought through strategy or if that just evolved because of how they happen to design the AI, which is why I think it got interesting for people um, going forward. But kind of like Pac-Man too. So what what emulator do you use for the NES for yourself, for your retro homebrew? Um, I use an emulator called Messen, M-E-S-E-N, which is in the NES community. is pretty much known as the most accurate emulator. Most accurate, eh? Okay. And it's got a really good debugging suite. Uh, so the actual development, but I think a lot of people use FCF, FCE UX as well. That okay. was really popular for a long time, but yeah, I use Messen pretty much exclusively unless I'm just trying to test compatibility across right. multiple emulators. Cause sometimes 
it'll work in Messin because it's accurate, but another emulator won't right like properly support the thing that I'm taking advantage of. So yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah, and you kind of have to like you could take the stance of well, it's it's working properly on an NES, <laughs> but you have to be realistic that not yeah. everybody's going to use the best emulator. A lot of people playing on phones using yeah kind of janky stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to reach them, then you gotta exactly gotta make it work. So what drew you to game development originally, Matt? Um, I think just growing up, like I was born in 82, so um, the NES and Super Nintendo were kind of cornerstones of my childhood. Right. Um, yeah, just they were kind of, not, and not just like playing the NES, but the cartoons were on TV. I was watching the Super Mario Brothers TV show, yeah. um, eating the cereal, like <laughs> the trading cards, everything. So it was pretty... Yeah, it was everything to me growing up. So yeah, um, I I don't think I really realized though that I could make games professionally for most of my life, and I think probably a lot of people growing up at that time never really thought about like, oh, there's actually somebody on the other side of this that is typing in the code that runs this. Um, until I got later in high school, and some of the like game design schools started popping up. The wow. very the first few like DigiPen, which is kind of associated with Nintendo, and then the one I went to, which is Full Sail in Florida. They were kind of the f- DigiPen was out for a while, but Full Sail was a slightly newer one. Hmm. Um, so yeah, once I s- kind of got wind of that, I was like, oh, okay, so I can just go to this school, and when I when I come out, I'll be able to make games or design. I wanted to design games. Yeah. Um, so I took the game design course, but that turned out to be like a really hardcore programming course. I had no idea, but it turned out to be a good thing because. I much prefer programming over just straight design on paper. Yeah. So yeah, I, I basically just found out I could go to school for it. Went to school and that's all. Nice. Did you did you do any uh, programming uh, before you went to school? Did you kind of? No, not really. I had done a little bit of HTML, mm-hmm. but like HTML 1.0, really really basic stuff. Yeah. Notepad. Yeah. I ran some emulation sites, some NES fan sites, stuff like that. But yeah, I was just typing it in Notepad. Saving it on three and a half inch floppy disks as backups, like really basic <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, nothing. I had used RPG Maker like once or twice, but I, I really had no idea what programming yeah. was prior to that. So, yeah, tell me about your degree at Full Sail. I saw that in in your um, in, in your email there, and uh, I thought that was very interesting. That must have been, like you said, one of the earlier programs like mm-hmm. that you know that was kind yeah, of yeah it's it's very common now but at the time it was very yeah. novel um and their school is quite novel so the way it works is i'm not uh, and i'm speaking like this is 2002 2003 so it's probably yeah. changed since then but um at the time i went it was extremely condensed you had classes that could happen any hour so i would have 3 a.m classes 1 a.m classes stuff like that and the way it works is you would have one course a month. So rather than having like four or five courses a term, you'd take one course, condense it down to one month, and you'd be in there eight hours a day for that one course. So I really liked it because it was ultra-focused, like learning C++ for the first time mm-hmm. is very challenging. So just having like 100% focus on that for one month was really, really good. Yeah. And the other cool thing is they start a new class every month. So as soon as we finish our C++ course, our intro to C++, we move on to the next class in uh, October, let's say, mm-hmm. and a new class is starting, and they're right behind us. So there's this kind of shifting window of people graduating. So every month you get to go to the graduating class and see their hmm. game projects and talk to them, learn what they kind of learned, what worked, what didn't, and you, you get this like constant view of what's what's ahead of you, what's behind you, what are people doing. So yeah, it's really cool. It's really condensed. It was really hard. Um, they have a very, very grueling schedule yeah. and very difficult program, but uh, I came out of it really happy. I felt really prepared to yeah. enter the game industry. Hmm. But nowadays, you can kind of get, I think, a similar experience or similar knowledge from a traditional university as well. Yeah, you, I think the uh, traditional computer science or um, you know computer mm-hmm. engineering, they, they do, there are other options you can take now that Oh, look Definitely. at some of these game game technologies and that. Yeah, and part of the thing was I didn't really know what I was doing at all. Like I had no idea what what you needed to make games. Yeah. So I was kind of just. It's really nice to have a course where they just say, "Hey, we teach you to make games." Yeah. Whatever that is, it's here, and when you leave, you'll have it. 
Yeah. Whereas if you're just going into a comp sci program, even knowing that comp sci is what people do to get into the game industry, into software engineering, you have to know that to begin with. And then you have to know what schools are good. And once yeah. you're there, am I doing like electrical engineering, software engineering? There's a lot of figuring it out yourself. But if you do the, the legwork, like I would say 99% of the people we hire are from traditional comp sci backgrounds. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 It's very rare that I see somebody from a, um, like a game design school. Yeah. Cause, cause you're right. I mean, learning to program is very different than learning how to write games. I mean, the game engine, yeah. the game loop, the, the there's, and there's very, there's, there's substantial similarities, but some big differences between game engines and technologies. And yeah. So yeah, that'd be very helpful. Um, what, what's it like working professionally in larger studios? Uh, it's good. I like it. Yeah, you like it? <laughs> it's, it's a nice, I, the way I think about it is there's things I can do in my day job that I can never do on my own. Mm. Like working on a project that takes 400 people yeah. to get out the door in yeah. five years. Um, or that requires a player base of hundreds of thousands of people on day one to make sure that multiplayer is healthy. Stuff like that. So those are things I likely can't do on my own. So I kind of latch onto that as what's interesting to me about working in AAA is yeah, doing those yeah. big budget projects that I can never do on my own. Yeah, There's downsides of it, which are, uh, it's like a Titanic. Like it's really hard to change direction. It's hard to have an impact. It can be really intimidating. Like you can make the smallest change in your area of the game and not really understand how that um, ripples out to the rest of the project. And it, it's kind of scary and, cause a lot of bugs and a lot of issues whereas in indie dev i can rewrite the rendering engine in a night because i know it inside out i know exactly how yeah everything functions how that's going to impact this level how it's going to impact that level but triple a like you i would never even consider something like that so yeah there's pluses and minuses so I, i kind of i like doing both because it scratches both itches i really like the creative kind of fly by the seat of my pants side of indie dev, but I also enjoy working on a huge project for three or four years and seeing the reviews and the videos and being on IGN and like those kind yeah, of things yeah. are exciting too. Yeah. Yeah. Good, uh, good coffee conversation too. When they say, what do you do? Everyone, a lot of people, I won't say everyone, a lot of people can relate to video games now. You know, it's, uh, yeah. The trouble is they always ask, how oh, do you work on Fortnite? <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on their age. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's funny, too, because I was playing Ninja Gaiden with my daughter on the weekend, and I said something, like, offhand. Like, I can't remember the wording, but she was like, oh, did you make this game, too? Mm-hmm. I was like, no, this is from, like, I was, like, four. But they just don't have the concept of, yeah. like, like why these are so different, like, yeah. Fortnite versus Ninja Gaiden 2. It's, it's interesting to see from their perspective. Yeah, they're all just games when you're that age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so you kind of already answered it, but maybe to bridge into it, what drew you into becoming an indie game developer? I mean, clearly you enjoy that that creative process and control yourself versus being a, a I'll say, a smaller cog in the big machine. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any kind of anything else, or was that kind of where, where did it kind of start um, for you? Well, like, yeah, it's, it's interesting because when I I've kind of made small indie games all through my career on yeah. the side projects. Um, I'm not sure, like, I just really like making games, for one. Like, it's it's something I'm, I enjoy making games probably more than playing games. Yeah. So, to me, it's kind of like, it's my hobby. It's like the dad with a wood shop in his garage. To me, it's a computer making games. So, that's kind of just what I do for fun. And, as I said, like, I was, the NES was extremely influential to me, Super Nintendo to a lesser extent. But, yeah also as well so i've always been kind of chasing that nostalgia chasing that kind of childhood memory and when i started doing indie games i was very into kind of the retro like games so like celeste um yeah and like those kind of 2d pixel art platforms but modern and i would i was slowly whittling down to trying to make an like the most authentic retro game that's kind of what got me into pico 8 because that's really kind of an authentic experience. And then eventually I was kind of so close that I'm like, well, maybe I can just make the leap to actually make an NES game instead of a game that looks like an NES game. 
Yeah. When did when did you first find Pico Eight? I um I, I ran into that. That's kind of how uh, we connected on on the show. Was mm-hmm. I think it was about three years ago, maybe. Um, tell tell me about Pico Eight and uh, a little bit about it. Sure. And how yeah. You found so it. for people for people that don't know, Pico Eight is what's called a fantasy console. So it's somebody imagining what say an eighties or nineties uh, game console might have been like. So uh, sixteen color limit. Resolution of 128 by 128 yeah. um, sprites, 2D, all that stuff. Um, but what makes it kind of unique or unique at the time was that it's very self-contained. The art editor, the music editor, the level editor, the code editor, they're all built into the console itself. So you just download Pico 8, you can play games, you can open them up, edit them, and you can make your own games from scratch. It's actually got a very... I mentioned how I was writing like... Uh, web 1.0 websites back in the day it reminded me a lot of that yeah. where back in the day you'd see a website that's cool you would just say view source and you'd be like oh they are using the blink tag and you'd learn about the blink <laughs> tag whereas nowadays you open it and it's a million php scripts yeah. or who knows what yeah. server stuff pico 8's a lot like that any game you play you just hit escape and you're looking at the code you're looking at the art yeah you can see exactly what they're doing you can tinker with it you can mess with, you can basically do ROM hacks. You can edit the graphics, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's very, it's very friendly to the hobbyist, to the novice. Um, but it's also got really strict restrictions on how much you can do, which is um, tough in some ways, but it's also empowering because you know, like there's a limit. It's almost like a game jam. Like there's only yeah. so much I can do in this space, so I need to kind of make everything count. And you're not, you're not battling like Halo. Like you're not competing yeah. with Halo. Yeah. Like nobody's making Halo in Pico Eight, so yeah. the it's a bit of a level playing field. There are people who do go way beyond yeah. the guys who did Doom. Uh, the Doom port and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, but those are quite rare. Like most yeah, yeah. of the time, people are making pixel platformers, yeah. and stuff like that. So there's a there's a nice level playing field where people are getting creative. They're doing interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't remember how I found it. Oh, I know. I don't know if it's how I found it, but I bought the pocket chip ah uh, yeah uh, yeah i have a pocket chip as well because okay l- like you it's interesting I, I, and uh you know I'm, I'm a few years older than you but still grew up in that age of cartridges mm-hmm. and yeah you know wanted to get my game on a physical thing and when i saw a pocket chip and i was doing pico 8 i'm like yeah, yeah i can play my game on this thing <laughs> yeah. with the kids right and yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah so i picked up the pocket chip it came with pico 8 yeah. and i started making stuff on the bus ride to work basically right. Um, so were you literally yeah. on the pocket chip typing in your code? Yeah. Yeah, it, was, <laughs> it was awful. Yeah, it was. Well, it was like it was pretty new and exciting. So for the first while, yeah. it was kind of it wasn't as painful as you might imagine because it was just cool to have anything. Like yeah. I was making really small stuff too because I was just yeah. getting into the pocket or into Pico Eight. So it's not like I was doing a massive project or something. I was doing little sine waves and bouncy balls and stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, they were like hundred line, yeah, projects. But it was still it was still pretty painful <laughs> at times, especially like physically painful on my hips. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of how I got into it, and it's got a really really vibrant community. Yeah. Tons of people making cool stuff. I can't remember if Celeste was out yet at that point. Um, I think it might have been. I don't remember if that's like that was one of the big early games. Yeah, for Pico Eight, but I can't. I actually I don't remember the details of how I got into it. It was bef- it was before COVID that Celeste on Pico Eight was out, so that's at least oh, three definitely, years ago, yeah. right? So, so you're right. Actually, it's probably more like four or five years. I think it was I like got 2016. Involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I remember seeing it on uh, Pico Eight and playing it. And I didn't really clue in at that time who that the makers were the ones who did Towerfall, and then of course it came out on the Switch, and that's how I do my research. I'm like you. I I probably spend much more time writing games than um, playing games, but I. I, I vicariously live through my kids. I'm like, oh, so, you know, I'm the opposite of most parents who are like, oh, get off the video games. I'm like, here, son, I just mm-hmm. bought Celeste. You should play it yeah. tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then I watch yeah, them for an same. hour. Yeah. 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 And then, uh, yeah. So, yeah, the Celeste was a neat experience on Pico 8. I remember that just how, you know, the games, as you said, there's this vibrant community and most games go out and, you know, they'll get 10, 20, 50, maybe even 100 favorites and a few comments it's kind of a nice community really kind of a creator's community and everyone 
And when Celeste came out, it was like 500 comments. The speedrunners yeah. attacked it, and you're like, "Whoa, what is this thing?" Yeah, because it was like you said, it was a new game from the interesting. The yeah, yeah. Guys. And that did make it into the actual game, right? That's the retro game inside of Celeste, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. Tell so. Tell me uh, what what game do you create on Celeste again? You have quite a few on there. What were on, on Pico Eight? You mean? Yeah, on Pico Eight. Uh, yeah. So I, I think the thing I'm most known for probably is I made two platformer starter kits. I made a, a yeah, hundred yeah. line, um, starter like hundred line platformer, which my goal was to kind of show how easy it is to make a really basic game. So it's a two right. D platformer, ball jumping around. Um, but it's in a hundred less than a hundred lines of code, right. so it just kind of shows like, hey, it doesn't take much to kind of get something on screen with right. collision and levels and all that stuff. Um, and the other one is I did it, an advanced micro platformer kit, which has been used in quite a few games, and it's basically just kind of a starting point for a two D platformer game. It's got mm. jumping, collision, animation, but then it also does slightly more advanced things, ki- slightly more advanced things like coyote time jump, like. After you go uh, off the right. platform, you have yeah. a few frames to jump or yeah. buffered input where if you jump a few frames before you hit the floor, it'll still recognize that. And just right. things to make it feel a bit more modern, right. um, camera system, stuff like that. So it's not super complicated, but it's uh, used a fair amount, I think, by people just kind of look because you can kind of start there, change the graphics, maybe add some collectibles and yeah, you got and, yourself a game. But in terms of actual games, I've done... Uh, I've done a, a, quite a few. Um, I did a disc relay game, which was based on the disc game from California Games. Which is oh yeah, yeah, I remember that one. I played that one. Okay, cool. yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that one like, got I hate uh... that game in. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like in California Games, it's the worst yeah. game in there. I don't know why I thought that would be fun to do, but uh, I've, I can have a habit of that actually. It, it was all it, it was all you could type on the bus. You're like, I'm yeah. gonna. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was the first game I made actually. Um, oh, was it? And then. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I did a, a wave race game, a two D wave race called uh, Wave Race Legend, and then which was actually that I was mentioning. I did sine waves and balls mm. bouncing on sine waves yeah. on the bus. I basically turned those into jet skis that are bouncing off the waves inside. Um, and then bigger projects. I did Witch and Wiz, which eventually became an NES game. That was originally a Pico Eight game. Um, I did a game called Kid Blood, which was kind of a throwback to bubble bobble but with a dash mechanic instead of shooting oh, yeah. you're gonna zip yourself into the enemies um i feel like i'm forgetting one but yeah those that's basically yeah. it i haven't done anything big in a while uh, since i switched to the nes i've been starting to use it again for prototyping my next projects but yeah. um yeah I haven't yeah it's it's one of those things not that i think a lot of us are drawn to indie games you know, we all like our games to get played and be popular. And sure, it'd be nice if it funded itself as a hobby or made some money in some cases. But the one challenge with Pico 8 is, of course, monetizing it in any way, shape or form. It's a ton of fun, is limited, but hard, hard to yeah. get, hard to, you know. Yeah, so it's a good, good prototype thing, good learning thing, too, I think, for younger yeah. kids. Oh, yeah. Can, yeah, I recommend yeah. it to anybody who's... Yeah. Especially people who have no programming, yeah. Like maybe they do Java or something for a day job, and they've always wanted to make games. It's a really, really good spot yeah. to start. Yeah, because then they at least they if they know how to program, it's they got all the tools. Yeah, you, you'll have that. something up and running within yeah. an hour for sure. Totally. So tell me, um, what is the first game you made, or an early memorable game that you made? Just going way back, what was the first one you cranked out? Um, yeah, I think I mentioned earlier, the first thing I remember ever making was an RPG Maker, I think RPG Maker 95, which at that point might have just been like a, a hack, like the Japanese version translated into English. I can't remember. I don't think I bought it. I don't remember. I probably <laughs> it's been 30 years or something. But yeah. anyway, I made something in there. Um, and that was the worst. I finished the game and then I wanted to, re- it was called like my first game or something. I was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to rename it to like whatever I wanted to call it. And in that process, I completely broke the game and I could never open it up in the project again. Renaming it back didn't fix it all. It was like mm. heartbroken. But Fra- um, that was the first thing. And then the first the first game I wrote from scratch was uh, a rock, paper, scissors game. But it was oh, yeah. real time. Real time yeah. rock, paper, scissors. So you were kind of like battling back and forth really, really fast. And you had like health bars and stuff. It was, mm. it was pretty cool. 
Nice. But it was like a ASCII console game. Yeah. It was your dwarf fortress. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Maybe not. I was pretty proud of it at the yeah. time because <laughs> most people, that was for a school course and most people were doing um, like kind of enter your name or like maybe yeah. like a Zork kind of like yeah. which direction you want to go. And I was like pretty proud that I actually made something real time. So that was, that was a proud moment. Cool. Nice. Um, yeah. What was the first, so indie game, fast forwarding to a little later in career, what was the first indie game you made of that you're like really proud of that kind of cemented the bug, if you know what I mean, that you're like, all right, I can, I can make a game that's yeah. other people like playing. Yeah. I think the first one that comes to mind was a game I made for, uh, it was actually for windows phone. Uh, it was called mm. swipe tap smash, which uh-huh. was a, it was actually, it was based on super spike V ball, which was an NES game probably came out on other things as well. But, um, yeah, it was a, it was an Android game. Sorry. It was a windows phone game and actually was able to sell it on a store and like go through that whole process. And, up to that point, everything I had done was um, just like I put it on a website somewhere and it vanishes from the face of the earth <laughs> shortly after kind of thing. This was the first time I went through the whole like process of making yeah. a trailer, yeah. Uh, yeah, uploading it to a store. And I did that because Microsoft was trying to get more people to make Windows Phones games. So they had a thing where if you release anything for the Windows Phone, they'll send you a free Windows Phone. So I got a free uh, Luma, Luma, Lumia, I can't yeah. remember what it was called, yeah. but I got a free phone out of it. Um, and then I ported it to Android shortly after, Nice, um, which was a pretty cool process. So yeah, that was the yeah. first time. I, and it was a project I was really proud of. It, it was like a full package. I hadn't yeah. really done anything that felt complete, like I could picture people paying money for this. Right. Not that it made much money, but yeah, I was proud of it. Nice. Um, well, let's let's wrap up on the interview here. Just one or two more questions, and then we'll get on to the top five games. Um, I'd, I'd like you to talk a little more about uh, your development on the NES. Normally here I ask about your, your game engine and that, but you're really working mostly these days on the NES ports and at a very low level. Tell me a little bit about the languages, the, the, the tool chain, you know, everything from how do you compile it, test it. Uh, you know, and even like graphics, how, how, what's yep. that tool chain look like for you when you're when you're working on these, you know, a, a computer yeah. from the 80s? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned it's low level. I think by NES standards, I'm like the <laughs> highest possible level, like in yeah. terms of techn- you're, you're technical. not writing assembler is what you're saying. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there are people who do. So like I'm, yeah. I'm pretty um, yeah, far from the metal in, yeah. in NES terms, but by game development terms, it's pretty low level. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I write everything in C. I use uh, two two key libraries. There's one called Nestlib, written by a guy named Shiro, who's kind of a yeah, pioneer, I guess, in the mm-hmm. NES space. Um, so he wrote this library that exposes a lot of the core functionality of the NES to a C or to a C library. Ah, um, so okay. drawing sprites, um, waiting for the screen to refresh all that kind of low, low reading controller right. input stuff like that so a lot of that is done for me um at least the initial version you have to do a lot of tweaking maybe to get things exactly how you want it but um, mm. you got to start there and then there's another library by it's called the nest Doug library by a guy named nest Doug. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of an extension of the nest lib library and so he adds some additional stuff the key thing is this VRAM buffer. So you can do things while the screen is drawing and kind of oh, queue it okay. up because yeah. you can't do a lot of stuff while the screen is drawing. You have to wait until the V blank. Right. Try to get as much done in that time as you want. I know that's maybe too technical, but no, yeah, that's good. he developed this system so that you can kind of do it while the screen is drawing, queues up almost like a render queue in modern yeah. terms, and then it pushes that all to the screen for you while the V blank is happening. So... I depend a lot on those two libraries. Um, so all my code, like my code is written in mostly C. I would say like 95% C. I do about 5% in assembly, but it's very like tweaky. I'm not kind of like right. writing from scratch that often yeah. in assembly. So is, is NES based similar to like the Commodore 64, the 6502? Is it it's 6502, yeah. It is 6502, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh... Yeah, I don't know too much about the Commodore, but I know that people have ported NES games to the Commodore with limited yeah. uh, issues. Like, it's a pretty easy port. Yeah. I don't know if the this 
I assume like the graphics chip is different, but I don't know actually. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think there's it's six five oh two became I think a ton of consoles and, and arcade games were more or less the six five oh two family. And then yeah, they would have some special graphics bits and yeah. Yeah, without like yeah. knowing yeah, I shouldn't even say too much because I'm not a huge hardware guy, but my yeah. impression is that sixty five oh two and the Z eighty yeah. were the two chips that were really, really popular at the time. Yeah. And I think the 6502 was slightly cheaper than the Z80. I think it was cost. I remember reading something. Yeah. I think cost is why it won so much. Yeah. Yeah. The um, so so in that tool chain, you know, so it sounds like basically you have a couple libraries that allow you to work in C rather than assembler, kind of bridges mm-hmm. the the low level interfaces. Have you basically recreated your own bit of a game library on top of all that that you can kind of kickstart your projects now? Uh, kind of. It's hard though because yeah. the. The NES is so slow. Like, it's really, yeah. really slow. Yeah. The room for generalizing code is very small. So yeah. it's that low-level stuff you can somewhat generalize. But, like, you can't just write, like, a sprite class that you reuse for every project because it'll just be too slow. You need to, like, make it very, very and too big. You don't have you don't have yeah. room either, like, in your code, in your uh, ROM. So... Yeah, everything tends to be very, very specific to the project, even down to the way data is organized. So if you're level scrolling left to right, you need your data to be stored like in vertical columns so that you can stream it in as fast as possible. But if it's vertical, you're going to want it left to right so that you can stream that in like line by line as you're moving up. So um, yeah, I don't tend to have a lot of um, like... library yeah. code i i reuse a bunch of stuff but it's more like i'll go to that project and say like oh yeah i, I used that trick there let me go find that code and over. yeah i don't really build up an engine in the traditional sense which is hard to kind of get out of that mindset but it's also empowering at the same time because you're not constantly thinking of well 10 years from now what if i want to write like an <laughs> rpg will this sprite renderer work you don't you just think like i need this person to render on screen and he can always have three frames of animation i'm gonna hard code this chunk of data to always like just walk through that Um, because even things like iterating over over a few like a an array of data like if it's not um aligned properly you're gonna end up with like divides that you don't want to do because they're super expensive so you end up saying like okay every animation is for like a power of two basically long Stuff yeah. like that. You have to make those kind of concessions a lot. And it I can't imagine trying to do it on a huge project where you have lots of people all trying to communicate oh, yeah. these weird esoteric dependencies. Um, but for one person it's quite it's quite fun and quite empowering because you yeah. just cut corners everywhere and you're rewarded yeah. for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's the opposite <laughs> of most things nowadays. Here. Mm-hmm. You optimize exactly. a lot earlier when you have, you know, what do you have, forty K or something or not even? And yeah. And then exactly. in memory I'm sure you got less than that. Actively. Yeah, 2K of RAM and then, yeah, yeah, it goes fast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> even yeah, exactly. Just just iterating over something every every frame yeah. at that slower rate. I mean, you'll you'll just you'll kill your performance instantly. So yeah, yeah. Uh, that makes sense. Very cool. Um, so last question, and then we'll we'll get on to the top five games. So tell me about your current game project. Um, how'd you arrive at the idea, and a little bit about where you're at with it, and maybe where people should go support it. Yeah, cool. So, yeah, I think you mentioned in the opening, I'm working on a Game Boy port of my first NES game called From Below. So the Game Boy game is called From Below Pocket. Um, So that game was like a Tetris-like game, but it adds like a a boss to it. There's a uh, a Kraken crawling up the screen as you're trying to clear blocks. So that's kind of the twist on the formula. so I made that for the NES, and then for the Game Boy version, obviously the screen's much smaller and the colors are more limited, so working on all that stuff. And in addition to that, I added Super Game Boy support, Game Boy Color support, as well as a multiplayer mode. So you can connect two Game Boys together with the link cable and play Versus, which was like in the original NES version. Oh, cool. So, so that game's basically done, and I'm just trying to figure out a publishing um, partner for that. So I think I've finally got all that worked out, but um, there's some hardware stuff we got to work through to make sure. I don't want to put it up for sale until I know for sure like everything's lined up and we're ready to go. But it looks like it's going to be a much quicker turnaround than a lot oh, of uh, projects like this. So pre-orders and then maybe one or two months until 
it's in people's hands. So happy with that, but I just need to finalize the details. Um, and then I'm also working on an NES game. I'm not quite sure where it's going at this point, but it's a 2D <laughs> platformer, um, probably like an adventure kind of game. And I'm thinking of maybe working in something with the Game Boy as well with that project, but nice. not quite sure yet. Okay, well, good luck with that. And uh, where where can people go if they, they want to copy it from below here? Um, everything, yeah, everything I made is on itch, itch.io. So if you just search for Matt Hewson or uh, go to matthewson.com, you can find links to everything. Um, I, just, I post most of my development updates on Twitter, where I'm also just Matt Hewson, M-A-T-T-H-U-G-H-S-O-N. Um, but those, yeah, those are the best places to kind of find me. And Great. And we'll make sure all that's in the show notes. Cool. Um, perfect. Um, well, let's move on to the top five games that influenced you segment. We'll count down in reverse order the top five games that had an impact or influence on the games you make today and uh, your indie involvement in general. So, Matt, number five is a game released on the NES by Enix in Japan in 86 and by Nintendo in North America in 1989. Dragon Warrior 1, or Dragon Quest, as you more commonly see it nowadays, as it was, I think, originally released in Japan as. Um, and there's many remakes and ports. You've picked the NES version. Matt, why is Dragon Warrior on your list? Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, I didn't consider that maybe I should have put the Game Boy version. But uh, <laughs> I think that's you, probably You can better. change it to Game Boy. It's yeah. all right. <laughs> okay. But it's kind of irrelevant. The thing that jumps out to me about this game, this was the... One of the first NES games I ever got, I was part of the Nintendo Power. Like mm. If you subscribe, they send you a free copy of the game. I'm so excited. Like You can't imagine at the time <laughs> just getting a random game in the mail was just mind-boggling. And I absolutely hated it. It was so beyond my child brain yeah. that I just I could not get over it how bad I thought it was. Um, but I recently gave it another shot and absolutely loved it. Once with kind of a bit of perspective, I could kind of figure out what this game is trying to do. And it yeah. does some really amazing things um, with, I guess, level design, like the way the world's laid out, how there's not a lot of gates. It's really like a truly an open world game. Yeah. Way yeah. beyond um, anything that came for many, many years uh, after it. And it's, which is, makes it very challenging to play because you're kind of left to figure out like, oh, if I walk into this zone and I get, one shot it that means don't go in there and come back <laughs> later and there's no there's no like real quest line you're not stuck in this small area and then you get like a key to open the cave and then go into a bigger area and then you get the boat and you can go into a bigger area and eventually get the airship and then you can go everywhere it's not like that at all it's just everything's open there's a princess who's captured by a dragon like maybe you go get her you don't have to yeah um, she helps you in your quest, but it's not actually necessary. There's all sorts of stuff like that where it just feels like, oh, this is a real, like, lived in, breathed in world that just exists. And I'm just kind of dropped in it. And I'm kind of trying to take out the big baddie, but everything else is kind of happening around me and in a way that feels very, like, anti, like, Final Fantasy as a comparison. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's all the reasons I kind of grew to love it. But the thing I, I find inspiring about it is, how much it feels like an actual adventure rather than a story, which I kind of just touched on, but the way yeah. the, the manual is written, the guide that comes with the, there's all these kind of random items. Um, I really love going through the manual, reading about the different stuff. They have history to them. You're like a, I don't, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I think you're like an ancestor of an ancient hero who, or a legendary yeah, hero who kind of took down evil. Yeah, it's something yeah, like sorry. that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like this, yeah, the, it just feels like an adventure in a game in a way a lot of games don't, where games often feel like I can see the designer pulling the strings and putting up invisible walls and blocking, like I can feel yeah. that, whereas this, it just feels like, yeah, I've, it's the closest to kind of a a D&D &D or Tolkien kind of adventure uh, that I've ever played, and it yeah. really kind of surprised me coming back to it after was it 35 years or something <laughs> yeah I, I loved it. I, it's funny i i played it recently as well and it aged not bad i mean it's it's simple it's it's one of the first but it it mm -hmm. aged well like so and you it, the influence it had on the industry is pretty well known you can just see all the the modern games you know basically borrowing the exact same ideas they essentially pioneered yeah. there right 
especially for a game with one yeah. playable character. Like usually yeah. that really bothers me in an RPG. I feel like it kills some of the um, strategy with combat and stuff like that. But I guess because this game's so grindy, it feels good that you're yeah. kind of just like you. It's very kind of simple combat. You learn what are these enemies' weaknesses. Who should I run away from? Who should I stick around? Who's like someone to yeah. get excited when you see them and <laughs> chase after them? Yeah. 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 Very cool. So number four on your list, it's a small free-to-play indie game called Alex the Alligator 4, made by Johan Peets of Free Lunch Design back in 2003, it looks like. Somewhere in that area, it looked like. Yeah. It's a, a 2D scrolling retro platformer. T- tell us about this title. Yeah, so um, Johan's like part of the Pico 8 community as well. I don't know if you've seen ah. his stuff. Uh, you'd probably recognize him if you scroll through his feed. But yeah. he also did yeah Icy Tower, which I mentioned there, which is a much more popular game. But mm, okay. um, yeah, this his stuff was one of the early cases where I saw an indie game. I saw the kind of blueprint for what kind of games I wanted to make, which were 2D retro platformers packaged up in a professional way that looked like something you would pay for they weren't just yeah. kind of random thoughts or a, a new grounds kind of quick I don't yeah they were real they were, they were full the time, games it wasn't a flash game yeah, yeah it was it was like a real like it looked like in yeah. that case it looked like something you would buy on the game boy yeah um so yeah it really like kind of opened my eyes up to what was possible which probably seems silly now but at the time there weren't really a lot of indie developers they were like indie developer meant id or something like that yes um yeah. so yeah it, it was it was really cool to see what he did um with his studio and the kind of everything was just really qual high quality like he he really kind of got an early like he understood like avoiding mixels like different size pixels and stuff like that like he got he got like how to make the full package very early which i think a lot of people didn't quite nail until much later very cool all right, so let's look at number three. Number three is a title I think many, again, will recognize, and uh, I think there's a theme here. It is Zelda Two: Adventures of Link, and this game, again, was first published for the NES by Nintendo in 1987. How did Zelda Two influence you as an indie dev? So, the, <clears throat> excuse me. The thing I really like about Zelda Two is how it, breaks the mold and doesn't have a clear structure, which I talked a bit about with Dragon Warrior 1, but Zelda 2 maybe even more so because it's a sequel that you have some expectations. But I love how, and there's lots of games like this for the NES, you can boot them up and not really know what you're getting into, and there's not (laughs) often a clear structure. Something I really like despise with modern games is how quickly you can see the structure unfold in front of you. Like you do one side mission and then you realize, Oh, they're going to make me do this side mission five more times and they're going to change the location or like, it's a chase mission. It's a stealth mission. It's like, you can kind of see those things and I get it as a developer, why we do those things because it's easier and you wouldn't be able to make a full 10 hour experience if you didn't kind of duplicate some work. Um, but with these early games, there's a lot of like, you just have no idea where they're going with this or they don't do things you expect. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Zelda, Simon's Quest, I mentioned as well. Like those games are just, I, I love that about them. I don't think they're great games. They'll probably bother some people. Um, but I like aspects of them and I love the piece of it, which I, I'm hoping to kind of take into my own games, which is, yeah, trying to break the mold and, remove some of the structure, doing just one-off random things, having random items that you don't really know what they do. And you like, maybe they're not even critical to the game. They're just there and you can kind of find them and yeah. experiment and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you raise a good point, which, which is, you know, a lot of these old games and going back and I've been, uh, I think similar to yourself, kind of revisiting the games of my youth a bit and, and sometimes finishing games that I never got around to finishing. And, uh, they, they don't hold your hands the way modern games do. No. And, and and for good reasons, modern games hold your hands because it's scientifically proven to make people play your game longer. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. good theory behind modern game design now. And they didn't have that in the 80s when they were building these games. So they kind of forced you to just, like, they, they almost forced you to work at having fun because you didn't know what the heck was going on. You didn't know where to mm-hmm. go. It'd be frustrating. You'd probably have to come back to it several times. 
but yet I find now um, that's also some of the pleasure in, in, in beating him. One of my favorite games of all time is the original Bart's Tale. And uh, I played it on the Converse 64 with a pad of graph paper. Yeah. You know, disc drive that would take minutes to load <laughs> and ground through that thing over probably two yeah. years of my life just here and there. And it was like work. Like no kid would do that nowadays. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Like there's so many aspects to that. There's the, like, there's so many games now yeah. that, the idea that someone's going to get through those really high friction areas yeah. is just unrealistic. They're gonna they're gonna put it down. Oh, I don't need to play this free to play game. I'm gonna go get something else that's yeah. like instantly fun and is like giving me dopamine drops instantly. <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, and the and the other part that you kind of mentioned there was the physicality of it, and maybe along those lines of getting maybe one game a year or two games yeah. a year. So yeah. like when you got a game, you you tried to love it. Like yeah. You did everything yeah. you could to get yeah. through it. And you would, um, you talk with friends and you'd at yeah. recess, you'd say like, Oh, like, like Zelda, like where's the third dungeon or whatever, where you have to yeah. burn the bush and they'd show you. And you like, there was all those, it was a living organic kind of experience. Yeah. It wasn't about, I can sit down by myself in a room yeah, for six hours and finish this game and everyone will have the same experience or close to it. It was, yeah, yeah it, was, it was the whole universe around you had to kind of coalesce to help you complete one of these games. <laughs> no bloody internet, <laughs> nothing like, like strategy. Like maybe a friend had a strategy guide and that would just yeah. be yeah. like the ultimate. Um, so yeah, I, I love yeah, I love the feeling that the people designing it didn't really know what they were doing or they were like at the forefront of a new type of game mm. and figuring out what that was. So all the pieces aren't exactly what you expect. They're... Yeah. They're a little off and a little rough and there's just like, yeah, I, I like that rough edge nature of those games of Zelda and Simon's Quest. Yeah, I, I think you're bang on, which is the downside if you take that risk and do that is there's so much choice nowadays. They just, players just don't finish it, right? And on Steam, for example, you just get killed right? instantly. It'd be all over. But for yeah. those who stick with it, it often becomes one of your favorite games because exactly yeah yes you yeah you figured it out (laughs) if anyone's listening to this and thinking they want that kind of game i highly recommend checking out lizard for the nes yeah which is very very much that kind of game like really (laughs) out there and they um brad who created some really interesting stuff like in almost every aspect of it it's Hmm. counterintuitive (laughs) to a degree but it's still fun like there's it's not like just really like art house weird or something yeah. like that. Like it's a classic platformer adventure game, but yeah. um, it, it will challenge your expectations of what okay. a game should be. And it really asks a lot of you to kind of yeah. live in that world, figure it out, go online, talk to people. Like it, it's it's all of those things. Interesting. Lizard for NES. Lizard, and, and yeah. So that's, a, that's a, a, a new game. Like Yeah, the, I think it was yeah. on Kickstarter yeah. probably like 2016, 2017. Okay. But uh, he's, I don't know if you know, like the Alwa's Awakening, the recent NES remake okay. of the PC game. He did that as well. He did the, Okay. he's a really, really talented guy in that. Nice. NES world. Okay. Very cool. Okay. Let's move on to number two. Number two on your list, as we count down to number one, is a homebrew game for the NES, released both digitally, digitally <laughs> and on physical cartridges in, it looks like 2018, 2019 timeframe. Uh, by Morphcat Games. It's called Micromages, a single or multiplayer retro platformer. Um, I had a quick look at the Kickstarter page. I hadn't heard of this one. And I mean, the screenshots look amazing. It's it's like you just teleported me back to 84 or something there, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So tell us about this game and why it's on your list. Yeah, this one's less, this one's more personal, less about the design itself. But mm. anyway, it's a really cool game. It's a four player NES game. Mm. Um closest thing is maybe ice climbers like vertical auto scrolling level you're trying to climb to the top break boxes um, collect gems and then you reach the top of the tower and there's a boss and you do that a couple times Um, but anyway it's less about the design it's a very popular game in the NES homebrew Mm. probably the biggest homebrew of all time oh really Um, okay yeah yeah, like that kickstarter was and they had an Indiegogo as well like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars they raised on that one well done um they have a really really cool uh youtube video how to fit a game in 40 kilobytes uh, which i think it is what kind of set them off that went a little viral 
And uh, it's a really, really interesting look at how NES games are made and some of those concessions we talked about earlier, like how do you fit, how do you kind of make creative choices and yeah. call your shots to say, okay, this is how we're going to fit this in memory by saying we can never do this and that kind of thing. But anyway, it's a really interesting video. Check it out. But yeah, the the, the reason the game's on the list is because it was my reintroduction to NES homebrew and the NES homebrew scene and what got me into development. Because prior to that, I didn't mention this earlier, but I've collected NES games since late 90s, basically, early 2000s, and yep. kind of fell off a bit after 10 years or so of doing that. And then I was kind of vaguely aware of homebrew at the time, but at, back then it was like tic-tac-toe, minesweeper, stuff like that. So it was, yeah. super, it was more of a technical achievement than a, a game design achievement. So um, that was kind of how I thought homebrew existed at the time. Or that's what it was in my head until Micromages came out and I was like, whoa, this is commercial level uh, yeah. game. And then I went down that rabbit hole and saw, oh, wow, like there's a lot of these homebrew games that I've never even played on my favorite system of all time. It's like walking into a library, basically, of all yeah. these amazing books you've never read. Um, and then at the same time, it introduced me to the idea of NES development and realizing that, oh, I can actually do this. And one thing led to another and then I got my own game done. Nice. No, I can see that for sure. And what do you think with some of these, um, some of the new games coming out in the homebrew community? Like, I imagine there's some that are, you know, channeling the inner nostalgia, if you know what I mean, to the point of being either really difficult or kind of the, the design mm. standards of the time. I imagine some of these games are channeling a lot of the new design principles and almost better than some of the original games by orders of magnitude because. They actually understand what fun is. There's actually some science to it now, you yeah. know? And is that, oh, are you definitely. finding that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, no doubt. There's a lot of benefit in the hindsight of yeah. 30 years of design yeah. principles. Um, little, like, yeah, there's so much. And stuff's a lot cheaper. Like, there's no reason every game can't have save now. Right. right. Instead of passwords. Um the ROM chips are way, way cheaper, so pretty much everybody can max out their memory if they want to. Um, our debugging tools are way better. Everything's kind yeah. of easier. Um, so it, it can lead to a lot more polished games, a lot yeah. more, yeah, just mo more modern-feeling games. But as I said before, I kind of like the yeah. unmodern stuff, which is contrary to It's a fine to my, line. <laughs> yeah, my last game, Witch & Wiz, was, which came out for the NES, was much more like what you're saying there, where it was... It was, I tried to make it feel very modern, like something you would play on a phone yeah. and not know it's an NES game kind of thing. So it, it is a lot more modern design things. But yeah, I think for the next project, I want to do something a bit more um, archaic. Just plunk them in the middle of somewhere with no instructions. Yeah, yeah exactly. See what happens. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And you, you, you're like, what you're trying to accomplish, like I don't need this game to sell a million copies, right? If yeah, yeah. 100 people play this and think it's, and get through all that those tough hills and kind of come out of it mm -hmm. thinking it's a great game. That's probably mission accomplished. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Okay, so let's move on to number one. And uh, this one, I think, is probably everyone listening will know. Um, it's Super Mario Brothers 1 on the NES, first released by Nintendo back in 1985. And, um, you know, released, I think, on pretty much every Nintendo console since then, and then in some way, shape or form and ported and copied and uh, uh, amazing game anyway. So Matt, why is the timeless classic Super Mario Brothers top of your list? Yeah. So the the first Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers one, I mean, obviously it's a, an amazing game that's been talked about to death. The thing that really amazes me about this game is how many things it gets right by modern standards that many modern kind of retro-like games still get wrong, or in my opinion, get wrong. The physics, the jump, um, the amount of secrets in the game, things to look for, yeah. um, the pacing of the levels, everything is so spot on. It's really kind of mind-boggling to me how much they managed to get right. And I don't know if it's like you were saying earlier, like it was just like you put out 100 games and one of them's bound to get it right or if they were really conscious about these things. And I yeah. suspect it's the latter um, because they've obviously been consistent for the last 40 years or whatever. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I look at that and then I look at some more modern platformers and I think like, why, why they still don't get the physics right. And they, it still feels floaty or yeah, there's no weight to the movement or there's like nothing to do besides run left to right or enemy does like enemy design is one that really gets me is super Mario brothers has so few enemies, but they're so well designed and so simple and they just work so perfect. And you play a more modern game and there's just shit flying, <laughs> um, stuff flying all over the screen constantly. And there's, yeah. it just feels like this random mess to me. And I look at yeah. Mario and I think, Oh, there's just a Goomba and a, uh, a Koopa like going by the screen. And that's so simple. I bounce off their heads. So simple. Oh, yeah. I hit this turtle and now I can use a shell as a weapon. It's this really, really basic stuff, but it's all really predictable. It's moving at a pace that I can anticipate and I can feel like I have um I have control over the situation. I can like if I die, it's my fault. It's not just something randomly coming off screen. Yeah. From off screen and killing me or like the kind of enemies that just follow you constantly. Like I, I hate that stuff. I want <laughs> I want something, yeah, predictable and yeah. Yeah. Just like workable as a as a player. So anyway, I, I look at that game and I just am in awe of how well it plays to this day and how much people can learn from it just looking at it and trying to recreate those physics. That's one thing I did in Pico Eight, actually. I recreated Super Mario Brothers one. Um and just yeah, really figuring out like why does this work and how little there is actually there, but it's put together in such interesting ways. The height of Mario's jump versus the height of the platforms. Like there's a lot of things there. Yeah. That maybe you take for granted, but if you really stop and analyze them, you realize, well, he has to jump this high because if I don't, then he can't move under platforms. He'll be stuck and everything will end up being a staircase. Um, yeah, just a, a million things like that that just work yeah. so well. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more with a lot of those things. You know, you you can still pick it up and play it. It, it, it. The minute you pick that game up, and I remember back in the day playing it the first time, you know, did a lot of things right and it did a lot of things that maybe weren't brand new but the way it packaged it all up was pretty pretty innovative for the time right you had a lot of single screen platformers still it busted out of that it uh, it did so many things you know had the boss yeah, concept yeah, scrolling, had the yeah. scrolling did all that yeah. yeah and then like the other two mario 2 and 3 like yeah just master classes to me especially 3 Two yeah. is a personal place because it was one I owned as a kid, but three, like, yeah, it's just unbelievable. I went through the other day just kind of itemizing everything I saw in each level, like new things being introduced, and it's unbelievable how much yeah. content is in that game. It's kind of the opposite of Mario 1 where it yeah. is so much with so little, and Mario 3 is just, like, every level has <laughs> five to ten new things introduced through the whole game. It's just it's wild when you start to when you stop to think about it and they're doing it on an NES that's 128 what, kilobytes. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. And they packed it all in to the NES mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah. That, well, and Mario one is even yeah. more impressive to some extent. Like, I don't know if you know, but it's, it's the most basic and it's the most basic mapper, which is basically no mapper. So they have 32 kilobytes of ROM and eight kilobytes of graphics. And that's all they have for the whole game. So the stuff they're doing, like they're basically running on the same memory that like Donkey Kong had and, Mario uh, Brothers one, like the yeah. all those single screen games. They're they're running on the same hardware as that on the cartridge. So yeah, like they're doing it's it's unbelievable to me what they were able to do. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Um and clearly for yourself too, that it was just that series and your your love of platformers now in your own indie career. So yeah. I could see why it's number one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um Matt, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. I wish you the best of luck on your upcoming projects, including From Below for the Game Boy. Looking forward to seeing it. I, I think I might have to go out to the uh, local retro gaming store or the pawn shop and pick up a Game Boy myself. I've been we did we did recently pick up an old Wii, and we've picked up a few. And they got all every time I go, I just look look at the Game Boys. I look at the old ones. Go, gonna have to get one. So. I think after our conversation today, I'll be purchasing one of those and, and getting some hardware for it all. So, um, but anyway, speaking with you today, the retro homebrew scene looks fascinating and uh, best of luck in all your endeavors here. Thanks so much for having me. That was awesome. Yeah. And one last time, if uh, listeners want to find out more about you and your upcoming projects, where should, where should we send them? Uh, MattHewson.com. M-A-T-T-H-U-G-H-S-O-N. 
All right. Thank you. Take care. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Indie Dev Game Break Podcast, where we interview indie game creators on their inspiration, technology, and the top games that influence them. The Indie Dev Game Break Podcast is hosted by Grant Karstensen with Stray Voltage Games. Music provided by Village Sound from Nova Scotia, Canada. Art and graphic design by Chad Boudelier.